Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 8th of March, 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, uh, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border. The plot thickens, Mike. Oh, it does. Uh, lots of people uh, pushing this around over the weekend. Uh, and thank you very much to everybody that did. Uh, this is an NHS document. Uh, dated December the 20, December 2020. It's uh, from NHS England and NHS Improvement Behavioural Change Unit in partnership with Public Health England and Warwick Business School. And it's called Optimising Vaccination Rollout, Do's and Don'ts for All Messaging, Documents and Communications in the Widest Sense. Uh, so before we have a look at this, of course, uh, we should remind ourselves um, that uh, the government up until this point has been pushing very hard this notion that uh, whether people choose to have vaccination or not, that that is a voluntary thing, it's not mandatory, it's based on informed consent. Uh, and so in that context, we should, uh, we should look at this. Uh, so let's have a look. Who is the pack for? Anyone who communicates in the widest sense on the vaccination rollout. Uh, and it's all about uh, producing media campaign, a letter to system leaders and uh, a standard operating procedure for frontline managers and clinicians. Uh, and it's uh, based on information from behavioral insights teams uh, and uh, behavioral insights will help and impact the impact of uh, various communications and so on. Uh, weaving those insights into letters and guidelines will have two positive impacts. The people reading them will be more widely reassured and more keen and willing to do what we're asking of them. Uh, and it will remind the readers of their role in sharing these important messages more widely, thereby supporting others in, front line, in the front line and increased uh, take up of the vaccine across the population. Um, and so they're talking about various cohorts, uh, system leaders, health and care workers, uh, care home residents over 65s, uh, care and uh, sorry, health and care workers, uh, recipients and young people. Uh, and. Uh, so this is uh, why they say it matters, because they need 80% coverage for the vaccination program to be successful. And current res research suggests that as few as 57% of UK adults would be vaccinated uh, with variations within various demographics. Um, so uh, who's involved in this? Well, we've got various behavioural change units. Uh, we've got uh, partners uh, for the main behavioural change unit within the NHS. Uh, at the NHSEI Behavioural Economics Unit, the Public Health England Behavioural Insights Team, the Cabinet Office Behavioural Insights Team, uh, Warwick Business School, uh, and so on. Um, so uh, they ran a workshop, they produced uh, various tables and so on. I'm just uh, pulling a couple of the graphics out of this. Um, so for example, uh, uh, they're, they're worried that care home residents uh, have certain behavioural barriers, which might be concerned about being first in line. Uh, they might have resistance to the sense of obligation. Uh, they might be confused about phasing uh, and they might lack trust in the immunizer. And therefore, uh, the behavioral drivers then uh, are ease of access, altruism, sense of community, uh, reward incentive, credit, and more altruism, uh, achieving, achieving collective safety. Um, so they're going to make sure that uh, older people in care homes um, definitely have a feeling that they're being altruistic if they have the jab, jab. Does that mean that they're uh, being told quite the opposite if they don't have it? Mike, this is really interesting seeing this because we've also had an email where somebody's commenting on what it was like to visit an elderly relative in a care home. And um, when we have our ad break, I'll, 
I'll be talking about that particular one. But what the person is saying is, I'm, I'm talking to different people. I'm not talking to, to, to my, my parent, my relative, uh, they've been changed. And I noticed in that table on the right-hand side, the extreme cynicism that young people, well, there's a prevalence of conspiracy theories, it says there at yes. 5.3. So if you're a young person, as far as these people are concerned, well, you're just some naive idiot who's not capable of making up any decision about how you should be treated medically. So. If we really stress this, and I think we need to, the, the NHS says that if you're going to receive some form of medical in intervention, you need to be able to make an informed choice. And then what they are doing with the other hand is making sure that people can't make informed choices because these people are using applied psychology to shift the way people think. Sinister, I, I, I can't use the D word, I'm going to say sinister, unbelievably sinister. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to highlight one other. Uh, David, uh, now you're not over 65 just yet. Uh, I know you're getting close, but, but reassurance of altruism versus selfishness. So it's not just, it's very much a carrot and a stick at, at work here. It's very interesting. This, um, uh, the, the, the young people, the, the, the condescending view of young people, this is actually being seen worldwide. In Israel, and we'll come to that later, uh, they're offering a, a free slice of pizza if you get vaccinated. Because that's how you buy young people, you buy them with pizza. It's the same as training a dog with a treat, right? And old people, well, they are altruism. Is that why the Queen was rolled out to talk about selfishness if you don't get vaccinated? Is that what was happening there? Is that the decision that someone made in some secluded Whitehall room um, as they formulated their, their plan for manipulating the entire country? I wonder. It's very striking. It's not reason and information and argument and persuasion. It's manipulation. It's trickery. Uh, and it's witchcraft that are being used on us. Uh, yes, indeed. And uh, well, let's have a look at the final slide here, because uh, this is their final slide from their presentation. Uh, and it's called Mindspace. Uh, and this is from the Whitehall Behavioural Insights team. Now, we have been talking, or particularly Brian has been talking about this Mindspace document for goodness knows how many years now. Ten years, Mike. It's yeah. ten years. So, so uh, for the full document, they give a, a link at the end of this. Uh, and uh, so with this in mind, we set out nine of the most robust non-coercive, they claim, influences on our behaviour captured in simple mnemonic Mindspace, which can be used as a quick checklist when making policy. So Mindspace is uh, messenger. Uh, we're heavily influenced by who communicates the information. Uh, incentives, our responses to incentives are shaped by predictable mental shortcuts, uh, such as strongly uh, avoiding losses. Norms, we're strongly in, uh, influenced by what others do. Defaults, we go with the flow. Uh, salience, our attention is drawn to what is novel and seems relevant to us. Priming, uh, our acts are often influenced by subconscious cues. Affect, our emotional associations can powerfully shape our actions. Commitments, we seek to consolidate, or sorry, we seek to be consistent with our public promises and reciprocate acts. And ego, we act in ways that make us feel better about ourselves. And this is a mnemonic that they're using uh, to help people uh, make policy. 
make policy. And the key bit is, Mike, who exactly is making this policy? So many people think when they're dealing with the NHS, they're dealing with the uh, NHS. It's that simple. But of course, it isn't because we're dealing with the NHS. We're dealing with the government. No, we're dealing with another group of people. So let's just recap on the Behavioural Insights team and what better place to go than gov.uk. Um, here's the uh, key part. The Behavioural Insights team is now independent of the UK government. Um, David, I might ask you about uh, the meaning of language in a minute because they've said they are independent. Let's have a look at the text. The Behavioural Insights team, also known as the Nudge Unit, is now a social purpose company. It is partly owned by the Cabinet Office employees and Nesta. For more information, please visit the Behavioural Insights team website so we can fill in the box that it's independent. Well, no, it's not independent at all. It's absolutely under the control of the UK government, but it's independent. This is, um, this is deceptive language. Uh, you would call it witchcraft, and I know why you do that, and I would totally agree with it. Um, but the word independent doesn't mean what the, the UK public think it, it means, clearly in this case. North and south of the border, the word independent is the most abused word in the English language. And the idea that someone who is paid by the state control in a, in a, in a, in a company spun off but owned by the state who reports to the state, whose job is in the gift of the state, is in some way independent, is laughable. Um, independence comes from having independent means, so you can form your own view and you can stand on that view and nobody can do anything about it. Right? You, can, you, can, you can stand up, you can take your own independent line and people have to just accept that that's what you've done. They can't remove you, they can't discipline you, they can't demote you, they can't fine you. And none of these things are true. And uh, all of the people who claim to be independent, it is just uh, wallpaper. Uh, just wallpaper. Okay, let's carry on with a reminder for people because this subject is so important. Uh, a while back, I think we're going back six months now, uh, we showed that uh, there was a mismatch between the NHS that was saying it was looking after people's mental health uh, with what was actually happening with the COVID-19 lockdown policy. And uh, on the slide we showed at the time, we brought in the Behavioural Insights team because, of course, they had been working with the government, the Cabinet Office, SAGE, and with our colleagues from BIT to deliberately ramp up fear and anxiety and stress, including turning communities against each other during COVID-19. That wasn't just our words, that was all part of the uh, minutes of the SAGE meeting back in uh, May last year. So uh, what we did is we reminded people that this had all been shown in the Mindspace document. So once again, we were pushing it in front of people. You can easily find it on the internet. If you haven't read it, you need to read it. It's a frightening document uh, because it says this, this means that by the use of their applied psychology. This means that citizens may not fully realise that their behaviour is being changed 
or at least how it's being changed so if we put this in the context of the vaccines uh, which you've just shown mike um, we can the, the government is boasting we can get people to accept the vaccine and they won't even know why they've done that because it won't be part of their normal cognitive process uh, so this is a dangerous covert attack on people's minds and of course bringing it to the surface so we can see what what is actually happening is a key part of countering it so um, the behavioral insights team in partnership with the cabinet office of course was and still is now last year this is uh, june we sent an email to the press office of the behavioral insight team challenging them on that sage document saying that people should be made fearful and stressed um, the perceived level of personal threat needs to be increased consideration should be given to the use of social disapproval this is messing with people's heads this causes stress mental illness possibly depression possibly suicide but of course what did we get back from the behavioral insights team absolutely nothing and this is the pattern so who are the people because it's not the organization that you need to pay attention to it's the people this is the key man because he goes back a long way a long long way to that uh, mindspace document professor david halpin we'll have more on him in the coming days uh, but this is an interesting lady janet baker from the cabinet office and uh, let's have a little look at her so linkedin uh, what she got to say about herself well she says she's got extensive experience working with businesses and clients to develop sustainable and value-added commercial solutions passionate about supporting teams in the development of new business and ventures David very quickly is this the sort of lady that you would turn to in order to help um, develop your business no because the people who have been put forward in these roles uh, never have any business background um, so I would tend to trust people who have done it and the people who have done it are not working for the government they're working for themselves um, well they're working for themselves they're working for other interests but this is her experience in playing with people's minds she's got a diploma in coaching from the University of Warwick uh, Warwick Business School and she she did a year with the Henley Business School to get a professional certificate in executive coaching she's now working with a team of people that say they can unleash psychological technology on the population to get us to take a vaccine but they don't want to print the adverse effects of those vaccinations so uh, what's her background altogether where well, she started off with Coopers and Lybrand she's went through a consulting agency uh, appears to have done something in the NHS although I couldn't pin that down uh, rural payments agency pops across into the treasury um, stays there for four years pops across into the ministry of defense as you do mike and uh, where does that end up audit commission uh, she's got a new bank startup then she's into the cabinet office and the behavioral insights team uh, but this one caught my eye because uh, she's saying that she's also working with zinc under their mission three uh, now 
Who is zinc? Well, we have mentioned this a couple of times. I'm going to say slightly tongue in cheek. It looks like some form of spooks consultancy, uh, because if we look at what they're doing, they say that they're there to deliver meaningful, measurable change around some of the most complex social issues. They're into strategy development, media development, communications, training and capacity building. Uh, this is a bit more detail here. So it's a mission led approach. And they say that if you want to get involved with Zinc's missions, it must tackle one of the great unmet needs in the developed world. The target addressable market must exceed 100 million people. So this is not some small scale little outfit. This is into major programs in uh, world countries. And there must be lots of unexploited opportunities to, quote, disrupt, extend and improve existing services. So they're going to be let loose in a country to help disrupt it. And I couldn't help noticing that the main financial backer there is the London School of Economics. So, Mike, we've had um, our eye on this organisation for some time. I think we'd say there's something a little more there than a normal company. Uh, yeah, it's it's part of the uh, part of the network of of organisations like BBC Media Action, like Thomson Reuters Foundation. They're into media development. They're into pushing uh, UK Foreign Office uh, narratives into other countries and countering so-called disinformation from other countries. Uh, and they, they uh, appear to to have really got going after the demise of the Integrity Initiative. Yeah. So we just follow it through just a little bit more. Uh, we've got these sort of images, which, of course, are all very glossy, glowing. These are designed to affect how you read it because it's about fostering good governance and democratic renewal. Uh, we've got this one promoting information integrity and media freedom. Um, got to get that word in there. <laughs> media freedom. No, integrity. <laughs> oh, integrity, yeah. indeed. And at the bottom, we've got supporting independent media in the Baltic. So that starts to give us the flavour. But I did a little bit of simple analysis here by just having a look at who the main partners were. So if you're into good governance and democratic renewal, London School of Economics, their main funder, but we've got the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office uh, promoting integrity and media freedom. We've got the World Health Organization, KPMG, the Rockefeller Foundation and the Foreign Commonwealth Office. Here's the extremism. Um, this uh, brings in the European Union and also the, the uh, US State Department. So uh, we're into raw um, governments here and uh, global powers. We've got the UN and also we've got the Australian government on board. Preventing online harms, including child sexual abuse. They're into all the good things. Same people, except we've got uh, New South Wales government and we've got another organisation from Australia. Championing animal and environmental welfare, World Health Organisation, KPMG, Foreign and Commonwealth Office, Rockefeller. And the last one here, building the capacity of civil society. Well, that was the, the Foreign Office. And I'm just going to end with this. Uh, which is one of their articles, absolutely fascinating, The Gap Society and what it means for communications. And it said that uh, as we did the final clap for our carers, 
uh, things have moved on. So a year ago, the idea that mass communications were in terminal decline wouldn't have seemed controversial. The ever-lengthening long tail of content, the proliferation of channel and platform devices, fragmentation of popular music, shop, decreases in readership, viewership and listening uh, to a much more individualised and atomized media. Uh, this is the key bit. This adds up to a simple truth. We no longer live in a mass society. Instead, we, lived in a, we live in a gap society. The gaps, the things that divide us, have more impact and effect than the things we share and have in common. This means we need to reevaluate how we think about media and have communications channeled. As the gaps have grown, the value has shifted. It's no longer about the ability to deliver mass audiences, but the capability to cross the last mile to reach into fragmented communities. So I'm going to say that they're basically saying we're no longer a cohesive society. We're fragmented, but they're worried. They can't communicate to us in a block. They've got to actually get in to individual fragments of that society in order to get their message across. So David, I'm going to say here that uh, these people are desperately worried that what's happening in society is outstripping their propaganda campaign. Did they just announce the death of the BBC, Brian? With any luck? Because that seems to be the implication that, that uh, the BBC's purpose is to speak to the whole of society and they're just saying, well, it's not working. It's not working, no one's listening. And uh, I thought that was quite interesting. Gap society could also be called ghettoized society. This is how they're seeing us. Uh, I'm not so sure that it's true. I think what we're, what, what we're seeing is people are moving away from a lying official narrative. Right. Well, a lot more to be done on this, but isn't it interesting that we're now linking NHS policy, uh, certainly over COVID, back into what is a deep state agenda with the uh, United Kingdom government. And it's really not clear what these organisations are doing, but we'll work on it. Um, David, uh, over the weekend in Scotland, in Edinburgh, there were uh, well, there was a protest organised uh, and it looks like, uh, uh, according to Edinburgh News, uh, there were some arrests. Six arrests of Edinburgh News reports following anti-lockdown protests. There actually wasn't an anti-lockdown protest. There was a lot of police action on some very peaceful people. Um, Superintendent David Robertson of Edinburgh Police Division said, quote, our approach throughout the pandemic has been to engage with the public explain the legislation and guidance, encourage compliance, and use enforcement as a last resort. The majority of those who gathered today were compliant when spoken to. Um, I will encourage people viewing here to see uh, our articles and video of the events of Edinburgh and uh, conclude for themselves whether that uh, police officer is telling the truth or is in fact lying. Um, and uh, so you, you do have a bit of video. Well, um, firstly, uh, I went along, I was asked along to, to talk and I went along to, to do a speech. And uh, that uh, was um, not allowed. So I went down to the beautiful uh, setting of the fourth bridge and did the speech to camera. Um, and uh, we've called it the Queen's Ferry speech. And I think, do we have a little clip of that? We do have a little clip. Let's uh, just have a look. 
So, ladies and gentlemen, in closing, I wish to say this. You are not equal. You are unique and beautiful human beings. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Your lives and your decisions matter. There is no such thing as equality. If we are fooled into believing this lie, that error will erode every good thing. For how can light be equal to darkness? And how can we discern the difference if we believe them to be the same? The state is lying to you. Do not believe them. As Solzhenitsyn said, live not by lies. And also, as Lou Rockwell said, never miss an opportunity for telling the truth. I have a few truths I wish to tell you today. Most science writing is false. Most politicians are irrelevant. Taxation is theft. The Crown Office and Procurator Fiscal Service is organised crime. The Word of God is government of the people, by the people and for the people. And Jesus Christ is our judge. If you have truths you want to share, drop me a line, david at ukcolumn.org and we'll read them out on UK Column News Extra and discuss them with Brian and Mike and the team. Thank you so much for listening and God bless you all. So that sort of um, speech was not permitted by uh, Police Scotland or indeed any other sort of speech, at least contrary to the narrative and policy of the state, was not permitted by Police Scotland. And uh, they got uh, reasonably heavy-handed. We did get some video, and uh, we have a transcript of this and video up on the website, of my interaction uh, with a police liaison officer, uh, which was quite interesting. There's a fo photograph of him here. In all of his PPE, he was well protected from everything, um, including ideas. And uh, do we have a little video we could run of that, Mike? We do. This man here won't, won't allow me to state my view. He keeps talking over the top of me. You can state your Why? view. Why? That, that is your human right to state your view. It is, However, of course, it's my human right to state my view. You are not allowed to state, your, to state your view in this forum today. Why? As I collect today, because the freedom of assembly is a qualified right. And in what way? What does that mean? I want you to explain to me what that means. It means that legislation can be put in place to restrict that, that right. Is there any limit on that legislation? Is there any limit on that legislation? Right. Can the government do anything it wants? Within the parameters of what it decides. Okay, and it's decided so, that so the, so the government is absolute. You're telling me today the government's power is absolute? You, you keep putting words into no, my mouth. No, that's what you said. It can do anything. You're trying to put words into my mouth. No. I'm trying to explain it in a simple term. That no, no, I'm making a point. If, if, if you let legislation in place, if you let me, if you let me speak, I'll explain my point. Then my officers are going to explain that legislation to you. Offer you a fixed If you, if you, if you, if you, if you, if you, you've now escalated it. You're now saying you'll abduct me. No, we didn't say abduct. Abduct. Wrong, wrong, wrongful arrest is abduction. David, this I have to say, this this idea that government is unlimited and 
that there's such a thing as a qualified right. Uh, this has been my problem with the whole idea of human rights in the first place, as opposed to uh, unalienable rights. Um, and yeah, this this is this is exactly the point. It was a fascinating exchange that went on for maybe about ten minutes. And we'll, we'll do an analysis of it later on this week, I hope, uh, Mike, because it, it brought out so many interesting issues. Here you see they're closing down free speech. They're closing down our ability to, ex to express ourselves one to another. And um, the reasoning, the reasoning is fascinating. The belief system that have been put into the agents of the state, fascinating. And uh, their response and how that exchange went had many interesting things. But... Do you think that was guidance and courage, compliance and use enforcement as a last resort, as uh, Superintendent David Robertson said? Is that what that looked like to you? Uh, no, I, I think, I think uh, enforcement was in her mind as a first resort. Yes, I, I thought they'd constantly tried to escalate matters. But I th David, I think this is true because the police are constantly sent out with targets in mind. The more people they arrest, stop traffic violations, the more points they get or the more points their police station get. Target-driven policing is one of the curses that was brought in many years ago. Uh, we're, not, we're not seeing police who are going out on the streets to calm things down and settle things down without the need for further action. We're seeing police that are sent out on the streets psyched up in order to get somebody because that makes their policing look good. Uh, this, is the, this is the application of this uh, vicious psychology on the police. And of course, this behaviour we're now seeing has been engineered through all of the police training organisations, the National College of Police Training, Europol, uh, Common Purpose was another organisation that got in to destroy the police. So this has not been the only example of this recently in Edinburgh. We have, a, we have an article on the website called A New Stinking Old Reeky. Uh, this is written by Aileen Gray, uh, and she describes uh, what it was like to take, take part in a march through Edinburgh. Uh, she writes here, we were utterly crushed and massively outnumbered that day. We didn't manage to assemble. We were threatened, pushed around and intimidated. There was no actual violence, but the air outside Edinburgh's parliament stank of it. We lost some of our people to the domestic terrorists, she means Police Scotland, picked off on the walk back to their cars in the train station, singled out as easy targets in a thinned out crowd. It took a while to dawn on me that the annoying woman whose voice was screaming in my ear to get out of there was actually me. We were terrorised on our own streets. That's uh, the nature of policing in Edinburgh today. Now, uh, in contrast, however, uh, Rangers won the league on Sunday when Glasgow Celtic drew at Dundee United. You might think, why are you telling me this? Well, many of the Rangers fans were rather happy about this and they decided to go out and celebrate. And you know something? The police response was a little different. We have a couple of pictures here that show Rangers fans getting selfies taken with a hugging a police officer. And we see uh, several thousand Rangers fans marching flanked, enabled 
protected and shepherded by the police through Glasgow in a tightly packed group of several thousand people singing Derry's Walls at the very top of their lungs. And this was the day after two or three hundred people who wanted to talk about liberty in Edinburgh were intimidated, bullied and shut down. I'm curious as to why there's such a difference. Why do you think that might be, gentlemen? Right. Do apologise. Uh, yeah, sorry. Uh, I was watching some of the video clips uh, of um, the NHS nurses protesting their uh, pay rises. Uh, there was a group of them outside Downing Street uh, on Saturday, I think it was. Uh, and the police were very accommodating there in London, at least. Uh, they uh, allowed them to, to, to make their statements to camera in front of the uh, in front of Downing Street and so on. But I understand that in Manchester there was a different policing response. So, it, it, you know, I thought we lived in a common law jurisdiction, David, where the law was applied equally in all areas of the country and everybody understood what the law is. Uh, but apparently that's very much down to the decisions being made by uh, chief constables these days. Yes, we don't have law anymore, Mike. We have policy now. Yeah. Yeah, we, we have policy and it's made up on the hoof. So this is the deliberate dumbing down of the police. They don't even know what their job is. So you're going to get different policing in different circumstances. But I thought we were going to end up deciding that scientific opinion uh, has uh, told us that uh, there's not a problem with football and COVID. That's always possible. Uh, possible, yeah. you know, takeaway in pubs. It's different. It's a different virus. Um, but uh, let's just stick on the theme of the police. And uh, many people pointed out this really excellent uh, video clip, little bit of editing, but uh, this is from Resistance GB. And I've got to say, please visit and have a look at the other material on this site. Very, very good. Let's look at the police re arresting these ladies in a London park. In the main body. Yeah, the main body. Madam, just mind a step. We're going to move round to the side doors, Madam. And my friend has been arrested for the same reason, for no reason whatsoever. We're not allowed to walk around, we have to go. They told us to go. I don't know where your carrier is. That's how anti-democratic it's got. And they'll find any excuse. So, um, David, it's, it's very clear, two extremely dangerous women, because the police, of course, had to hold on to them at all times. Um, look at the number of police there. I mean, it was clear that either one of those ladies could have turned and sprinted across that uh, park, leaving the police in the dust. Well, they were cl clearly worried they wouldn't be able to catch them if well, they did run away. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so 
we've got policing here which is is mind-boggling isn't it the police clearly can't think anymore and quite a lot of the comment coming from people interacting with the police is that the police are not thinking as people anymore they're not acting as human beings so in that park I counted at least 13 I think it was police officers uh, patrolling or playing football I couldn't see what the ones in the background were doing um, but if you were out in the park uh, you were a risk to society and you clearly needed to be arrested by multiple police uh, this is organized madness well you, you right you say that 13 police officers to arrest two old ladies this might seem excessive but these old ladies these, these old ladies can really be difficult sometimes and um, it's I think it's it's a case of real life is now imitating art because I remember when I was a small boy we had Monty Python they had a sketch about hell's grannies you know gangs of old ladies beating up young men maybe that's what the police have been watching and and they're trying to avoid this yeah possibly uh, well let's uh, switch to something positive and several people have pointed out um, this site fair cop um, now what is this about this is about people who are change, uh, challenging this sort of bizarre policy by the police uh, just put in one of the statements here fair cop is a group of individuals who've come together over shared concerns about police attempts to criminalize people for expressing opinions that don't contravene any laws and a second one here we bring in some of us have been victims of police interaction following social media activity some are police officers ashamed at police action all of us are furious with the big brother overreach of various police forces and other authorities we're united in our aim of enforcing existing laws governing freedom of speech conscience and assembly rights that belong to us all in this country and um, this is really the key man Harry Miller because Harry Miller was a former police officer or is a former police officer but he was arrested and it was reported particularly in the Guardian uh, a little over a year ago uh, because he dared to push out some tweets and he was later to find that effectively he had a criminal record as a result of the fact he'd made some quite uh, reasonable comment on social media so uh, do have a look at what those individuals are up to and if you like what they're doing give them some support because this is what it's all about standing up to be counted uh, now a couple of uh, weeks ago we mentioned uh, digital identity and that the government is uh, pushing for us all to have one um, and let's just remind ourselves uh, what this is about uh, so here it is uh, first of all uh, data management policy uh, they're going to create obtain disclose protect and delete data now, but it's going to be safe and secure and GDPR compliant of course so we don't need to worry uh, it's going to follow industry standards and best practice for information security and encryption and it's going to tell us the users if any changes for example uh, an update to their address have been made to their digital identity. And uh, if you remember, uh, the digital minister here, uh, Matt Warman, had said it was becoming it has become increasingly important at this digital age uh, to be able to establish trust, particularly online. There are times in day-to-day -day life when you may be asked to prove something about yourself to access a service or product. Uh, having an agreed digital identity that you can use easily and universally will be the cornerstone of future economies. Uh, that's where we left it when we initially uh, reported this. Let's add some additional detail onto this now. 
so th they have published some information. Uh, they're saying that one type of digital identity which could be developed under the trust framework is similar to a wallet. Now, of course, many people getting used to the idea of a wallet if they're uh, involved with crypt uh, cryptocurrencies and so on. Uh, but created securely on your device, uh, it lets you store various trusted pieces of information about yourself. We call these pieces of information, of personal information, attributes, and you can choose when and with whom you share them, but probably never your whole wallet of information. And they have a nice little graphic there uh, with some attributes. You know, for example, if you're over 21, if you're a qualified barrister, if you're licensed to drive, if you're a resident of Newcastle, or if you're a pensioner, these are the examples that they give. Um, it goes on to say, uh, this could include disclosing details from the government, such as your legal name, your date of birth, your right to reside, to work or to study, as well as details from other organizations, such as professional qualifications or employment history. Now, uh, that's a little bit more detail on it. I just want to remind everybody that there is uh, a consultation going on, a survey. Uh, the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport has published this. The uh, URL is on screen at the moment. Uh, it's your opportunity, they say, to provide feedback on UK digital identity and attributes uh, trust framework. Uh, it begins with some overview questions and an opportunity for you to provide written feedback. Uh, if you wish, there will also be an opportunity later in the survey to provide line by line feedback on the trust framework document in whatever section you wish. Uh, now this closes uh, at 12 p.m. Uh, on the 11th of March, uh, which is just a few days away. So I strongly suggest people uh, get involved and, uh, and give their feedback. Now, many uh, private organizations very, very keen to get involved in this. Um, and here's uh, one such initiative, it's called NCOVID. Uh, and uh, so they're providing a passport solution. This is funded through a government-backed Innovate UK grant. Uh, but the government, of course, isn't in interested in pursuing vaccine passports or anything like that. But they're still funding this type of initiative. Uh, and it's a co collaboration between Fingo and Enduring Net, which is apparently a not-for-profit uh, privacy uh, specialist. So this is Fingo. Uh, and uh, Fingo's main technology is, is all about not needing a smartphone. So you, the, they uh, have a, a biometrics uh, signature, which is based on the, uh, the, the vein patterns in your fingers. So they've got a, a nice little fingerprint reader, but it's not reading your fingerprint. It's actually scanning the patterns of your veins in your finger. Um, and uh, this apparently is combined with self-sovereign identification from blockchain developers, uh, this crowd, Blockpool. Uh, who are all about custom blockchain development. Um, and uh, so this digital passport application confirms identity as well as recording COVID-19 test status, uh, giving a robust, secure and fraud proof system uh, to ensure safety of uh, residents and staff. And at the moment it's being targeted at the care home sector, uh, but of course it's more likely to be uh, for broader rollout in the future, I'm sure they're very keen to take advantage of uh, a broader rollout and the potential profits there. Uh, but people will be glad to know that in Switzerland, at least, uh, they have decided that they don't like this idea. And because Switzerland has the ability to 
hold referenda on various government legislation. Uh, they've now voted down the government's attempts in Switzerland uh, to pursue this type of thing. So uh, this is uh, Swissinfo.ch. They're saying voters in Switzerland have thrown out a law governing a proposed electronic identity system. Uh, this result is a blow for plans by Parliament and the government amid fears about data protection. Uh, final results show that 64.4% of voters came out against the planned law. Uh, and uh, uh, this was the result from the, uh, the Swiss government, or sorry, the, uh, the, the response from the Swiss government. Uh, we have no choice and must work toward a new solution even if it takes several attempts. <laughs> so once again, just like the Irish EU referenda, uh, we will keep holding the vote until we get the right result. Uh, yeah, um, I couldn't possibly say, well, actually, if people are saying they don't want it, that's something the government should pay attention to. No, we don't like that answer, so we're going to keep going. Um, we're encouraging people to respond to that survey, and I think People should because it puts pressure on. Uh, but of course, at the end of the day, the way the British government normally conducts surveys is to conduct the survey and then carry on as normal. Yes, well, indeed. <laughs> uh, OK, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. And also, please do share. Uh, our material as widely as possible. I see we're up to just shy of 85,000 uh, subscribers on YouTube. Uh, it'd be nice to uh, get to 100,000 before they kick us off if they decide to do that. Uh, but uh, uh, yes. Yeah, well, we'll just give people, encourage people to do that. It would be good to see that 100K come up. Um, now, we also want to say, if you haven't, would you consider supporting uh, Linda Thayer's um, crowdfunder because um, she needs this money to help conduct her legal defence in France. Uh, there's no ifs or buts about that. This is very, very important. And uh, at the end of the day, Lynn, uh, Lynn Thayer and uh, David Noakes have worked so hard to uh, bring the idea of alternative remedies uh, for certain ailments to the public attention and they've certainly paid the price so see what you can do uh, here's part of the uk column article on david noakes and lynn thayer gc math and the persecution of david noakes lynn thayer and immunobiotech so you can have a look at that and uh, this is the email that i was talking about uh, it says finally got to visit my parents illegally the other day Great to see them, but stuck behind a mask, even though they'd had their first jab. They're both 78 years. They're only watching mainstream media, and they are terrified of this governance by propaganda. It's heartbreakingly painful to hear your own parents when asked if it's okay to give them a hug, and the reply comes back, no, you're infected, and they believe it. I asked them if they'd heard of any end to the mass or not just the lockdown they replied no this is forever now and they believe that i feel like they've had their minds robbed and they are now scared of the world and people that is an unbelievably sad uh, email and it shows the really poisonous effects of the government's policies uh, because we're not just splitting uh, families apart we are literally destroying the minds of people who get caught up in the fear factor of this uh, nonsense over a pandemic david um, we're not just talking politicians who suffer from egos and uh, a few other personal 
uh, defects. We're talking about people who are utterly lacking in any form of human warmth and compassion. And of course, people without those attributes are capable of doing anything at all. Yes, I, this is why it's essentially a spiritual fight, and this is why the problems are essentially spiritual in nature. And the failures that, that we see in society go much further than the politicians and the government. Uh, this, the, the scientific consensus has failed us, as has many parts of the medical profession, and we know the gallantry of those parts that have stood against us and the opposition that they've seen. Um, and we've also seen the mainstream media fail and not question this narrative. So there's, there's much failure to go around, and against that background, individual people are frightened and they are desperate, and I'm seeing people even that I meet in business who, who don't look well, who don't look, um, who look worried, distressed all the time now, and it's the lockdown that's doing it. Yeah, that's that's correct. Uh, well, just in the UK column section here, I want to say thank you to the viewer that uh, sent me a very interesting email and reminded me, of course, the report, particularly in The Guardian, of Boris Johnson, who was sighted at an airport after he'd been to what was described as an exotic Italian party with Lebedev. And uh, what did the text say? I've just chosen a bit. The passenger who asked to remain anonymous said... He was standing in the queue to go through security when he realised the scruffy man shuffling along in front of him was Johnson, who was clutching a thick book about war strategy. It was a surprise to see him. There was nobody with him and he didn't appear to have any luggage, said the source. He was such a mess. He was quite dishevelled and his trousers were twisted and creased. He looked like he'd slept in his clothes. And the other inference from uh, that article is that uh, Boris was possibly still under the effects of that party and whatever was uh, taken or consumed. And uh, what did, why did the viewer send this to us? Because uh, they were pointing out this is the man that we have all been stupid enough to give authority to run this current lockdown. So when we're looking for who is responsible, part of that should be a look in the mirror to say we've all allowed this to some extent. David, I think you're, you, you look as though you might have a bit of a response to that one. Well, I mean, there's plenty of, there's plenty of uh, problems to go around, but remember the, the failure of democracy, one of the things that's failed is the whole democratic system because we're constantly given choices between the bad and the worse. Yeah, that is absolutely correct. Uh, okay, let's uh, come on to face masks and uh, an article in the Evening Standard here. Face masks safety use used during intense exercise study suggests, um, and they are pushing uh, this idea quite hard. So let's uh, ignore the Evening Standard and go and have a look at the actual study. Uh, this is it. Uh, you can leave your mask on. Effects on cardiopulmonary parameters of different airway protection masks uh, at rest and during maximal exercise. And this is what they actually say. Protection masks are associated with significant but modest worsening of uh, spirometry and cardio uh, respiratory parameters at rest and at peak exercise. The effect is driven by a ventilation reduction due to an increased airflow resistance. They say, however, since exercise ventilatory limitation is far from being reached, their use is safe 
even during maximal exercise with a slight reduction in performance. So there is a reduction in your performance as you exercise, um, but uh, don't worry, it's safe. Now, of course, this uh, particular report, this scientific uh, uh, analysis was based on oxygen levels and so on, um, and no mention of potential of breathing in uh, microfibers or nanofibers and the potential effects of that, particularly under uh, the type of uh, uh, in, uh, intense breathing that you're going to be doing uh, under uh, physical exercise, exercise, physical exercise and so on. But look, if, if people are uh, not buying the mask story and are particularly concerned about their uh, children uh, at school, uh, going back to school this week and being encouraged to wear masks, it's quite interesting that although the uh, schools are being told and the public are being told by the government that it's purely uh, an opt-in whether children wear masks in classrooms or not. Uh, schools are certainly telling the children that it is mandatory. Uh, but this is Lawyers for Liberty and they have uh, a section on their site, it's on the front page of the site, uh, called uh, Mandatory Masks and or Testing in Schools. Are you concerned about your child? Uh, and they actually publish uh, a template letter if anybody wants to write to the school. Uh, I would suggest if you're taking a template letter from an, organize, an organization like this, it's a very good letter, but try to personalize it because it's, it's much more powerful if it's uh, seen not to be uh, sort of part Just of a campaign as such. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, now let's move on to the issue of uh, testing. Uh, and uh, lots of people sending me this over the last few days. Uh, guidance from the UK government, COVID-19 management of staff and exposed patients or residents in health and social care settings. Now, this was published at the end of January. Um, and, uh, well, why am I mentioning this? We'll come on to that, back onto that in one second. But uh, in the meantime, let's look at this Guardian article from today. School COVID tests, pupils in England very likely to get false positives. Um, and this is what the uh, Guardian article says. Every pupil who received a positive test result after taking a rapid lateral flow device test at school should check the results against a so-called gold standard laboratory test known as PCR test due to the fact that LFD results uh, was just as likely to be a false positive as a true positive, leading, a leading statistician has said. Well, in fact, if you look at the uh, details of lateral flow tests, um, you find that they're much more likely to, if you do get a positive test, there will still be false positives with uh, LFD tests, but much more likely to be, uh, if you get a positive result, to be as a result of it detecting really infectious material. Because the problem with the PCR test is uh, it is the gold standard for producing false positives. That's the reality of it. And here is uh, what that document, that government document says about this. Uh, it says... Immunocompetent staff, patients and residents who have tested positive for SARS-CoV-2 by PCR should be exempt from routine retesting by PCR or LFD antigen tests. Uh, this is because fragments of inactive virus can be persistently detected by PCR and respiratory tract samples following infection long after a person has completed their isolation period uh, and is no longer infectious. Um, and uh, now this is what Patrick Valance mentioned on uh, a, one of the government's live streams a couple of weeks ago. It is what the UK column and many others have been highlighting about PCR tests for over a year now. And it's the point that we've been making is that PCR tests should not be used as a diagnostic. Uh, and in fact, they shouldn't be being used to drive 
uh, policy, which is exactly what's happened. The only reason we've got lockdown, the only reason that we've got um, uh, the vaccine programme is because of PCR testing and so-called cases. Uh, and uh, the, the, the reality is, uh, to put it crudely, uh, there are, the, the dead do not exist. The people have not, the, 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 uh, the all-cause mortality in the country doesn't lie. And we haven't seen the levels that were threatened by uh, the various so-called scientists and sage and so on. So look, let's just consider the implications uh, of false positives through whatever testing mechanism it is. First of all, immunity passports and certificates. If, if you're relying on PCR tests with respect to immunity passports or certificates, and it could be months from your, the point where you're already through an infection before you're actually testing negative, then what are the implications if immunity passports and certificates are rolled out? What are the implications for your employment status uh, under those circumstances? What are the implications for availability of healthcare if you are not allowed to get healthcare for a heart attack, for a stroke, if you're not allowed to have a, a routine operation uh, because you have tested positive and you're continuing to test positive even though you're no longer infectious? Uh, what are the implications for you? What are the implications for a child's ability to attend school or college? Uh, and what are the implications for our ability to travel? David, Everything has been based on PCR tests, the gold standard, um, and uh, the gold standard doesn't work, at least from, a, from a, a, the ability to decide whether somebody is actually infectious or not. But it seems to work very, very well for the governments that want to impose a policy which is unpopular and unnecessary. And the other thing that I would say here is um, that uh, actually has completely gone out of my mind, so I'll just pass it straight over to you there. <laughs> And, and the government's policy is science-led, we are told. The scientific experts are defining what we're doing here. The politicians are just following. So the implication of that is the scientific experts we have are incompetent or lying for some sort of political agenda or a combination of the two. So they need to go. This is a scandal. Our entire policy, our entire shutdown, the ruination of our economy, the isolation of our people, a spike in suicide rates and all the other harms are based on testing that's not fit for purpose and the scientists haven't managed to notice this. They have to go. I think they have managed to notice this. Well, look, let's uh, move over to Israel and uh, bring us up to date on what's going on over there. We uh, have... Um, uh, uh, on Northern Exposure, and we'll be up um, just after the news on the UK Column website, an interview with Gillard Artsman. Gillard has been studying very closely the figures and statistics and social media coming out of Israel. Israel's far, far advanced uh, ahead of all the other Western European nations in their lockdown policy and in the rollout of the vaccine, and strange things are happening, and Gillard goes into many of these. A 1,300% increase in... Uh, uh, mortality in infants and newborns, strange problems with nursing mothers, strange problems affecting women, uh, responsive populations to the vaccine that are the opposite of what one would expect if the vaccines are as a, uh, safe and effective as they're claimed. Uh, a fascinating interview. I hope uh, people will will follow that and, uh, and, and, and consider the points Gillard makes. Uh, another excellent interview, this time by... Uh, 
um, James Dellingpod, and uh, he he interviews uh, Ilana Rachel Daniel. Now she is now a politician, but she wasn't a politician. She'd avoided politics, but she's a, a mother and a, a woman living in Israel, and she's so appalled by what's happening to her country. She's joined a political party called the Be Healthy Party. Um, she she writes here, like many of you this this past year, I have witnessed the deliberate destruction of the values that we live by and the systems in place to uphold them in the name of public health. I, like you, have sat up nights grappling with the inconsistencies in, it, in the explanations our government has offered for their policies. In the near uh, five cumulative months we have sat in lockdown, I, like you, have seen the brightness in our children dim. And isn't that a telling phrase? She continues, after the full year, Billions upon billions of dollars and the most brilliant scientific minds at the task, I ask, how can deadly lockdowns and risky experimental novel technology be our only options? The cure has become far worse than the disease. I maintain that the right to self-determination and bodily autonomy are not privileges offered by the government, but are inalienable rights inherent to every individual with whom we share the planet. Informed consent is a basic component of a healthy and functioning society. The freedoms of speech, choice and ability to earn an honest wage and raise a family accordingly are rights of, upon which the government may not intrude. Uh, indeed, and just and, uh, to stick with Israel for one second then, I just wanted to highlight this, which I thought was uh, slightly amusing. Uh, David, uh, Pfizer CEO, uh, CEO's Israel visit cancelled because he's not fully vaccinated. So uh, it is a bit ironic, perhaps. But I wonder, is that really the reason, or was there slight concern that he might get lynched? <laughs> well, it could be either. Yeah, either way, it's funny. Yes. Uh, okay. Let's uh, just quickly move on to this. The BBC uh, pushing this out uh, yesterday. Why popular YouTubers are building their own sites. Uh, and uh, well, they're suggesting that uh, people are not sorry, wrong, uh, wrong graphic there. I've had David on screen by accident. We're not doing well today. But anyway, why popular YouTubers are building uh, their own sites uh, and they're not uh, they're not uh, really talking about censorship as such. It's a recognition among some of YouTube's biggest uh, YouTubers, some of the biggest channels uh, that in fact reliance on a single platform is perhaps not the best thing to do. Um, and uh, but an acknowledgement as well, it seems that they're not so keen to move on to other platforms because you're really just back in the same situation uh, with uh, with the other platforms. And David, they are therefore setting up their own websites and starting to for the first time and starting to try to build their own platforms. Uh, I wonder what your thoughts are on that just briefly. Well, it's excellent news and it shows it shows that if um people who get a monopoly position in a, in a market that's in any way free start to abuse that monopoly position, other sources of uh, services will come in and displace them. The Facebooks, the Twitters um, and, and the Googles of this world, beware. Indeed. Now, a few minutes ago, Brian was talking about uh, the Zinc network and uh, media development and so on. Uh, the news from Iran is that uh, Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe has been released. She's had the tag removed from her leg, uh, and uh, but she is quite possibly facing new charges uh, in Iran over the next uh, couple of days. So she's going to be back in court, uh, and we'll see whether she actually ends up being sent home or not. Dominic Rab uh, had this to say. 
he said, we welcome the removal of Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe's ankle tag, but Iran continues to put her and her family through a cruel and intolerable ordeal. Uh, now, of course, what was this all about? This was, uh, she was arrested on the basis of undermining uh, the sovereignty of Iran uh, through her work with the Thomson Reuters Foundation is what Iran was alleging. That's what they convicted her of. Uh, Thomson Reuters Foundation, of course, denied it. Zagari Ratcliffe herself has denied it. Uh, this is Monique Vila. Uh, COO of Thomson Reuters saying these charges are linked to her work at BBC Media Action and the Thomson Reuters Foundation. Uh, and she said that this is a complete invention as the Thomson Reuters Foundation doesn't work in Iran and has no programme or dealings with Iran. Uh, but at the same time she was saying that, uh, Boris Johnson, who was the Foreign Secretary at the time, was saying when we look at what Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe was doing, she was simply teaching people journalism, as I understand it, at the very limit. Uh, well, was she doing this? I don't know for sure what she was doing. She's certainly working for an organisation and has in the past worked for one of the other organisations that is absolutely going into countries teaching journalism with a we with a Western outlook and a Western ethic, uh, being pushed by the Foreign Office, funded by the Foreign Office. Uh, and uh, I just once again encourage everybody to have a look at uh, this article on uh, Consortium News. Reuters, BBC and covert UK programme to push Western agenda. Uh, and this is uh, the first, from Max Blumenthal, the first attempt at looking at the latest leaked documents uh, from, through Anonymous, um, from the Foreign Office, uh, which shows that uh, BBC Media Action and Thomson Reuters Foundation were doing exactly what Iran was, uh, was accusing them of, although there's nothing in those documents to specifically say that they were doing it in Iran, uh, but nonetheless, uh, that, is, that is what they were, what they were doing. So, uh, but she's been released in the meantime, uh, although she hasn't had her passport given back yet. No, well, we'll wait and see how it develops, but uh, interesting that uh, her treatment is cruel and in, inhuman. Um, she's been basically restricted to house arrest, as I understand it, Whereas we've got the whole of UK under a similar situation, but that's not cruel. No, indeed. Uh, right, David, uh, we're rapidly running out of time, but let's just uh, bring us up to date on what's going on with Nicola Sturgeon and uh, the Alex Salmon affair. Yes, a, a quick summary here from Brian Manteith in The Scotsman. The Holyrood election is open again and even Sturgeon could lose her seat. Transpires that being the most corrupt uh, nation in uh, the known world, uh, eventually tells on your popularity at the polls. Um, he writes, the outcome could even go as far as the First Minister losing her seat. After the assured performance of Alex Salmond in front of the Holyrood inquiry into Scottish Government's disastrous changes to sexual harassment policy, it was time for the Lord Advocate to make an, a reappearance and then for the First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, to have her say. He continues, I cannot tell what people in legal circles thought of the Lord Advocate's performance, but in political terms, it was seriously misjudged. His aggressive tone and threatening demeanour brought him no credit or the Crown Office. In suggesting the committee should be careful not to impugn the reputation of an institution he oversees, he made two obvious errors. Firstly, he failed to recognise that the Crown Office serves the people of Scotland and must be accountable to Parliament, not the other way around. Secondly, he, secondly, he uh, rather forgot he was only a few weeks, it was only a few weeks ago when he was required to apologise to the full parliament for a malicious prosecution by the Crown Office of two, in, two innocent citizens in charge of Rangers FC when in, when in administration. 
uh, with the compensation settlement already at £20 million and likely to rise as much as five times that number, the committee would be hard-pressed to malign the Crown Office's reputation any more than it had achieved on its own. Uh, and and uh, it, it, Brian Monteith continues, the Lord Advocate's appearance was, however, a mere amuse boucher to what was to come the next day, which is, of course, the uh, appearance of Nicola Sturgeon, who, who uh, stood for eight, well, sat for eight hours, showing remarkable um, uh, staying power, eight hours before committee, basically remembering nothing, uh, and stonewalling for eight hours, and uh, controlling as much of the exchange as possible, and remembering no interesting facts. Um, and then Brian Monteith says of this, the reek of possible cover-up and corruption emanating from the upper echelons of the Scottish Government has been grown for the last month. Now it's so intense, even triple masking cannot disguise it. No surprise that over the weekend, two new opinion polls appeared showing the continuing fall in support for both independents and the SNP. That makes three damaging polls in the last 10 days before the reaction to the government's evasiveness has had time to sink into the public's consciousness. There were um, billboards uh, across Scotland at the weekend saying resign Sturgeon. There was um, sky writing going on and uh, saying resign Sturgeon. There is a clamour for her to go. Uh, yeah, and uh, well, where does that leave us with uh, John Swinney? Well, John Swinney is going to face a, a, a vote of no confidence over his um, blocking of uh, information to the Salmon Inquiry. Uh, but we have another matter to raise here. So this is a UK column article published today, John Swinney in the Crown Office. Now, this uh, relates to a family he was the constituency MSP for, and he was helping over many years. And when they really needed his help, that help was removed. Um, they, uh, they cited him, they asked him to be a witness for them as they fought to keep their son. Um, and he refused. Um, and when they cited him to appear, uh, strange things happening. This is their account, the family's account. At the opening of the case in the morning of the 3rd December 2015, Mr Adam Heath, solicitor for Perthington Ross Council, called for a point of order, which was approved by Sheriff Wood. Mr Heath stated that he had received a phone call from a third party, asking him if he could assist in getting one of the witnesses out of giving evidence. When asked who this witness was, he said it was one of the witnesses for the parent attempting to recover the son. When asked who the third party was, the solicitor stated that it was the Lord Advocate for Scotland, Mr Frank Mulholland. Finally, when asked a second time who the witness was, Mr He said it was Mr John Swinney, Deputy First Minister of Scotland. The Sheriff said this action would not be allowed, but also prevented the recording of the point of order by the verbatim reporter. So here we have interaction between the cabinet minister and another cabinet minister who is also the chief law officer for Scotland to influence a civil case, to interfere with a witness list, to, well, is this not contempt of court? We don't know. Is this standard practice? There are many questions. Is, is the Crown Office there simply to get, um, to make awkwardness go away for politically well-connected individuals? How corrupt is Scotland? We asked some of these questions in the article. We hope that we will be seeing some answers before very much longer. Uh, David, just uh, just very quickly, uh, when I saw some of the uh, some of the evidence being given, the Crown Office was continually being referred to as the Crown. Uh, these delusions of grandeur. 
Well, and the irony is, of course, Mike, that I once asked the Crown Office and Procurator Fiscal Service what the word Crown meant, and they told me they did not have that information and therefore under the Freedom of Information Act could not give me a response. Yep. Um, so what's the Diary of Justice and Injustice Scotland saying? This is a, 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 a record of a, a case against Nicola Sturgeon. Um, uh, she was um, uh, investigated for uh, serious misconduct when she was a solicitor. Uh, she was found guilty of serious misconduct. Transpired, she had been telling her client that, oh yes, I, I've definitely applied for uh, legal aid on your behalf when she'd done no such thing. It's just interesting that the lack of truthfulness in Nicola Sturgeon seems to go back a long, long way. Yes, okay. Well, look, uh, let's end with uh, your traditional final slide then. Yes, I like this one. So we've got here um, the uh, story of COVID uh, told uh, via uh, Soviet uh, propaganda. So at the start here, we have four people before the, before a desk and they're labelled trust government, two weeks to flatten the curve, wash your hands and no groups. And then two weeks to flatten the curve is air brushed out and is gone completely. And we're left with just, just the three. And then no groups disappears because obviously if you're Rangers fans, you can assemble in a group. Um, and we're left with just trust government and wash your hands. And then eventually it's just trust government as Stalin looks down on you. And that's where we're at about now. Indeed. Uh, I think that sums it up extremely, extremely well, David. Thank you very much for that. And we'll be back in 10 minutes if you're on the uh, UK Column members site uh, with some extra. Uh, and I'll just end by saying I was able to just to do a, a check on the Lynn Thayer uh, fund as the news progressed. And that uh, is now up to 10,883 um, towards a £35,000 target. So um, £2,000 up on what we showed on screen, which is really good, but still a long way to go. So if you can help, please do. That's it. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. We will be back at the same time on Wednesday, but stay tuned if you're joining us for the after news event. Bye bye. Bye bye.